um, we're going to <clears throat> find the kind of person that God chooses to use, and we're going to find that little treasure of knowledge hidden in a gene genealogy. I about called it a genealogy. <clears throat> so we're still digging in Genesis, obviously. Uh, I love feeling like an archaeologist because I'm just digging. And my kids will make too many Minecraft jokes about that, so we're not going to go down that road. But <clears throat> this is actually part seven, and it's hidden treasure in a genealogy. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 31, that's all the more scripture we're going to read. And we're going to try and go really quickly, and it'll probably go way faster because I don't have all the handy visual aids behind me. So you may have to get out a notebook and kind of follow along. Maybe you can sketch this out in your notes. But now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. We like to call him Lot, but Hebrew pronunciation is Lot. And it's really fun because if you say it with that deep voice, Lot, you know, <clears throat> for a little kid that's in the story here, Lot. But anyway, and I've got some ADD going this morning. Just, just hang on. If you were at Sunday school, I really had it going for a bit. But Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur, or Ur, of the Chaldeans. And here in the Western world, we tend to call that Ur, and we call it the Chaldeans. So if I slip between the two, forgive me, I'm trying to start pronouncing these the way that people in that part of the world do, and I'm probably butchering it, so people who actually really do deeper in-depth study of this are going to see this and they're going to laugh and and I'll laugh with them because I'm a, a simple guy from Western Oklahoma trying to pronounce, you know, one of the oldest linguistic groups in the world. And Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, which is actually pronounced Yishka, which is where in Hebrew we get the name Jessica has nothing to do with anything, but now if you have a Jessica, you can just nickname her Ishka. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Avram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Avram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay, there's a whole lot of geography tied up in that we're not going to talk too much about today. But when, when we start to look at this, if you want to draw it out, you can draw this family tree really quickly. Terah being the top of the tree, that's dad. The branches that come off of it are Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, And the way that we read that is we read it just like we read everything else from left to right goes firstborn, middle child, baby. Okay, firstborn, middle child, baby. If, if this were the Manning family tree, it would be 
even though we're putting a girl in here, Easterners, forgive me, Deronda J.J. Daniel. <clears throat> and Daniel's going to get mad if he sees this because the third character on the family tree dies. But <laughs> anyways, yeah, we won't go there. But off of Haran, you can draw a line down that says Lot because he's the first character that we get mentioned in this family tree. So we've got Terah, Avram, Nahor, Haran, Lot, and you can draw a line through Haran because he died. Okay, you don't keep you don't have to keep them in the tree, and that's how you designate they're dead. You can still read their name, just draw a line through it. They died. Okay, that, that's an Eastern thing. Okay, when they're dead, they're dead. We move on to the next generation. But continuing. Uh, I looked at this and and the the phrase that sticks out, and you probably read it too in Genesis eleven twenty-nine, and my English teachers in the room, what is wrong with how that starts? And most translations start this way. It starts with what? And. You don't start sentences with and, do we? Okay. Any of my grammar people here? Grammar police, I need you. Okay. Carrie, do we start sentences with and? Okay, in a song you can't, it's not a song, okay? This is a, a written piece of history. It's a genealogy. And it's a piece of history. And I'm like, why did they put and in there? That became one of the questions that jumped out at me. You know how I've started to talk about read scripture and it's okay to ask questions. That stuck out at me because I, I, I've been hammered into my mind with, and I'll just call it, I'll call her out, you know, not speaking ill of the dead, but Keith Ann Armour hammered that into me that you do not start a sentence with and. I don't care if you just had knee surgery and you're on hydrocodone, do not start the, yeah, anyways, that, that was my senior year. Uh, but when, when this shows up, it's the translator's version of trying to translate a very complex Hebrew word. And, and the best translation they could come up with is they were like-minded or they had similar thought because what follows right after that and? Avram and Nahor. So and, and if you read this in the Hebrew and just translated it straight to English, it would say, and, and Abram Nahor took wives. In modern day speech, it would tell us that Abram and Nahor made an agreement and they each took wives. Now that doesn't make any sense until you tie the rest of the story in. Who are these wives that they're taking? And Abram's wife was Sarai and Nahor's wife was Milcah. And Milcah, we know from the family genealogy, is the daughter of who? Who's she the daughter of? Haran. Okay, that would be another branch that came off of Haran. Who's dead? He did. But he's got a daughter named Milcah, and he has a daughter named, according to later in Scripture, Iska. And Iska becomes a problem for us here in just a minute. And I know this is like, how are we going to take anything from this? But I promise we'll get there. Iska is his other daughter. Well, Avram marries Sarai. Nahor marries Milcah, who is actually his niece. Now, before we all get weirded out, 
uh, I want you to understand this traditional Eastern culture that will show up over and over and over in the Old Testament. Okay, we better get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it, in our wonderful Western culture, we've given it a label to make it a little easier to take. This is what we call a kinsman redeemer. Because in that culture, if you were a girl, I've got a whole row of them over here, beautiful young ladies, a whole row of them. So I want you ladies to help me answer this. Okay, who's in charge of keeping your house safe? Dad. Dad. Okay, Dad. Who, when, when you need money, you know, you may go to mom, but when you need money, who do you really have to go to? Dad. Dad, okay. Well, in that culture, it was the same thing. Dad protected the house. Dad provided everything for his daughters. And Dad served as the primary agent for their wedding. He was the wedding coordinator all the way down to who the groom would be. And the groom would have to prove himself worthy of this daughter by a bride price. Now, if we look at Milka and Iska, that has been taken away from them by death. Their dad has died. So they don't have a provider. They don't have a protector. They don't have that mediator to secure their future in marriage. And these two men say, we're not going to let our family suffer. Nahor and Avram take these close kinsmen as wives. Now, I'm giving away a little bit of the plot and I can't prove it with anything other than circumstantial evidence. This will not hold up in court. But I believe that Iska and Sarai are the same person. Now, it took some digging to get to that because Sarai in Hebrew means princess. Iska in Hebrew means to look forth. But these people were not Hebrew. At this point, there are no Hebrews. This point in history, these people are Chaldean. So you have to dig really deep to find the name Iska in Chaldean. Iska in Chaldean. Hold on to your pew, hold on to your Bible, get a good grip. Because what's Sarah mean? Princess. Iska in Chaldean means my princess. It takes care of a lot of things for me in a hurry because Iska is never mentioned again in Scripture. This is her one appearance of all time. There's only a few other people throughout Scripture that show up one time. Okay, even Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, shows up again in the New Testament. They mention him. Iska never gets mentioned again. But the good news for us is we can tie these two together pretty easy. Because how she walk into the story if she's not already part of the family? So we've got kinsman redeeming going on. Now, i got to get past a bunch of slides because I covered a lot of stuff right there. The two things 
that bothered me the rest of the way through when I was looking at this passage of Scripture. The, the first one was why marry nieces, and we've talked about that, because they were kinsmen redeemers. They were not going to turn and look the other way and make these most vulnerable members of their family fend for themselves. Because Lot is no good to the story here. Lot cannot provide for his sisters. He's a young man with very little inherited to his name because who's still alive at this point? Grandpa. Okay, Grandpa hasn't given the inheritance to his three sons, and how do they split the inheritance in biblical time? This becomes an important factor. The firstborn gets a double portion, and the rest of the portions are divided amongst the other heirs. So what we're looking at is who's going to get the double portion in this story according to our graph? Avram. Abraham. Abraham, you want the... Every now and again, I'll probably slip and use it. Abraham is the firstborn or he is the behor of the family. And he has all the rights of the firstborn, including the responsibility of carrying on the family legacy. He and his middle brother are going to take care of the younger brother's family and continue to provide heirs for him because that's also part of the kinsman redeemer is that you provide heirs for your brother's bloodline. The the first child that you have is in honor of that brother. And we'll get into that way later. Uh, Well, not way later because it shows up in Jacob's family. But anyway, yeah, we'll save that for another day. Still makes me shudder. But the second thing is the fact that they're already bringing out the point that Sarai was barren. Why do you bring that up in a genealogy? I I know because we have the, the later view of the story of this family. We know why it matters. But why did they bring it up in the genealogy if it didn't matter then? And... This is going to be a root factor, I think, of why God chooses this family. Of all the families of the earth at this time, this is why God's going to choose this family. is because Sarah, or Sarai, or Iska, whatever you want to call her at this point, they already know she's barren. So if you're the behore of the family, you're the firstborn, are you going to willingly marry someone who cannot produce an heir? Okay, this isn't late Victorian England with Henry VIII, okay? This is ancient times where you had one duty as the firstborn son, and that is to build on the legacy of your father. And Abram's the firstborn, which firstborn gets first choice. So why would he not just choose the sister that's not barren? And and I want you to understand that 
Abram and Nahor were both good guys because they were doing the right thing by their family. But Abram sets himself apart because he does the extreme right thing looking out for the best interests of everyone else before himself. He says, I'm not going to get to be everything that, that just being born first entitled me to because if I don't choose Sarai, if I don't choose to marry her, there's no guarantee that Nahor is going to do the right thing because I can't make my brother do the right thing. Can any of you make the person next to you do the right thing? But can you choose to do the right thing yourself? Even when it's hard, can you choose the right thing? Abraham is looking at his future versus doing the right thing and he chooses to do the right thing, to care for someone else more than he cares about himself. And that's exactly the kind of person that God is going to use that God is going to make the father of many nations. He gives up the responsibility to carry on the legacy of the father. And, and shortly after this in Scripture, we're going to see that his father takes him and his new wife and his nephew, and, and they go on headed towards Canaan. And... Nahor stays with the wealth that they had built, which was a transfer of the birthright, which tells me that, that Abram's daddy really loved him and was not willing to just let him go try and start making a new life on his own. He was going to go help. This is a family full of just lessons over and over of the kind of people God chooses to carry his name to build nations out of, to build kingdoms with, if you want the modern Christian term. He chooses people who are going to do the right thing and take care of other people first. And we're going to see that this family is just full of people that have the right stuff because nowhere in Scripture does it criticize his brother. We don't know. I'm, I'm pretty critical of him because I think Abram chose Sarah because he couldn't trust his brother to do the right thing. But in reality, I don't think any of us can trust the person next to us to just absolutely do the right thing if we can do it first. How many of you have ever had your mom say, if you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself? My mom said it. My dad said it. I'm here to tell you, when it comes to the work of the gospel, if you want the job done, do it yourself. If you want that friend of yours to come, know, come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, you've got to do it yourself. You have got to share the gospel with them. If you wait for them to have that magic moment where the right preacher walks in, you may never get to see it in your lifetime. Because guess what? You're their friend. You're the right teacher. And well, pastor, that's going to be uncomfortable. Do you think it was comfortable giving up your entire future for Abraham? He gave it all up. 
The rest of the time in the narrative, in the the story of Genesis, we see people who say, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to go acquire for myself. I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to pronounce cursing on people for myself. And we see the story, how it goes horribly wrong. And now we hit Abraham, who's wired different. He says, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about her and our family and our family's future for her that she would be protected provided for you know young ladies in the room marry an abraham you want a happy marriage marry an abraham that dude's going to go out and bust his tail to give you everything and if he's really like abraham he's not worried about what he's going to get out of it abraham never wants calls out his wife for being barren. Never once. And you'll watch as we go through the story that, yeah, he makes bad choices. Abraham's still going to mess it up. Men in the room, Abraham still messed it up. Praise God for that. But the difference between Abraham and all of these people that messed it up before him, Cain, Noah, you know, we can, we can keep jumping through the Adam and Eve. All these people that didn't trust the story before him, the difference between Abraham and these people is that every time Abraham messed it up, he came back to God and said, God, you're the only one who can really do this. God, I want you to confirm your covenant with me. And, and there will be times we'll get to see it that God is going to make it hard on Abraham. I want you to understand it's hard because it's worth it. And God lets Abraham be who He made him to be over and over again. But the first step in being the kind of person that God chooses is to love and to care about other people more than you care about yourself. To put other people first. To go out of your way Give up your time. Ooh. Everybody in the room knows time is money. You're already you're giving up two things right there. You're giving up time and money to reach them. You're giving up your agenda. I'm sure Abraham had plans for his life. Have a lot of sons, have a lot of camels, have a lot of whatever else they herded that made him extremely wealthy. To have a lot of that. And you'll see it in stories to come that Abraham was a planner. But he was also willing to sacrifice his plans and to trust God. So be the kind of people that God chooses to use. And we talked a little bit about it last week and I'll reference it again in Corinthians where Paul tells us, you know, you, you don't have to suffer from imposter syndrome because God didn't choose the best and the brightest among you. He didn't choose the more powerful, the wealthy people of influence. He chooses the simple. And I'm telling you, it doesn't get more simple than what's up here. He chose the simple to confound the wise, to make the wisdom of the world look foolish 
because the gospel in itself to the world looks foolish. Why would God do what he did for us? Why would he love us enough to give his son for us when we're just going to keep messing up the story? I want you to know that if you pay attention as we're going through Genesis, people continue to mess up the story. And the Old Testament's there to teach us that you aren't big enough to mess up God's story for your life. As much as you try, you're not big enough when you're small enough to repent and say, God, I blew it. I messed it up. I was looking out for me there and not looking out for what you wanted. I was building my kingdom instead of building yours. Abraham and his descendants are never judged for their wealth. God never gets mad at them for being wealthy. Never. Never gets mad at them for being wealthy. Now, he does rebuke them one time for how they go to acquire wealth, and we're going to talk about that. That's going to be a fun message. It's one of the biggest con schemes in, in the Old Testament that nobody realized is a con because we just read it and go on. Like, oh, that's weird. And it's, it's fun stuff. So, when you're reading in the Bible and you come to those boring genealogies, make sure you slow down and dig just a little. There might be treasure hidden there. Because in the end of that genealogy, we found out exactly the kind of man that God chooses. Heavenly